The Bible starts with an extraordinary claim. It says, in the beginning, God created. So the image of God painted in scripture is that of a creator, an artist, the original artist, one with an immense amount of creativity who puts into motion a universe that is also creating. A universe that's going somewhere, that's expanding. God takes disorder and darkness and turns it into something beautiful. An earth with land that can be built on, water that sustains the land and allows vegetation to spring up, trees that produce more trees and fruit and oxygen, animals who procreate and fill the earth. He creates a beautiful work of art, stopping along the way to step back and enjoy his work. And he calls it good. Now, for my entire life, I've heard people argue about Genesis 1, and usually for all the wrong reasons. The first chapter of the Bible is not a science textbook. The author doesn't have a single concern with evolution or dinosaurs or fossil records, but there is a point the author is interested in making. See, towards the end of the chapter, the form of this piece of literature breaks. It becomes clear that something special is about to happen. There is a final piece to his creation. He says, let us make mankind in our image. That's a big statement. Now, the Hebrew word for mankind here is Adam, which just means humanity or all human beings, regardless of gender or race or socioeconomic status, every human being is created in the image of God, which means God holds human life very, very high, every human life because we're all created in the image of God. There is no balancing clause for race or ethnicity, gender, education level. Humans bear the image of God, period. Not only is this a unique characteristic of the God of the Bible, it also is essential to understanding today's story. Why? Well, let's get back to the table. Welcome to Stories in Scripture a podcast dedicated to telling the big story of the Bible one piece at a time. My name is Keith. And I'm Ryan. This is part two of seven, the moment Jesus changed everything we understand about hierarchy. The men settled quickly around the table. They didn't want to waste too much time. Passover represented a time for reflection and fellowship, and the twelve students and their teacher set to the task with the typical enthusiasm and noise of men who have traveled and experienced the extraordinary together. The tables are arranged so that each man could see the other. Two tables traversed the length of the room while the other connected these at one end. As they entered, they paused. They all knew what the other was thinking. Where will I sit? The placement at the table was vital to their sense of order and self. Peter and John confidently strode toward the middle table and took the two seats on the right and left of center. Peter on the right, John on the left. As if by instinct, the rest gradually find their way around the table, taking their seats accordingly. Peter looks around and generally approves. Some surprise him though. Finally, but most importantly, their teacher steps to the threshold of the room. He pauses like every one of the other men, Yet Peter understands this pause. He doesn't pause with uncertainty, but with genuine reflection. Peter watches Rabbi watch the room. He gets a distinct idea that this meal will be different. He's eaten Passover for his whole life. This one was going to be unique. 
The men are tense. They shift and adjust in their seats nervously. They furtively look at one another. Peter feels a strange, energetic flame begin to warm the room. Clearly, the men need this release of the meal. They have traveled and lived together for three years throughout dark and dirt, small towns and large crowds. It takes a toll on them, strange relationships that were once non-existent. On top of that, Rabbi has been talking about the coming of a kingdom. Now, he arrives in Jerusalem at Passover in triumph, regal and strong. Peter can sense the end of their time as a marginal group and the beginning of their ascension. A quiet conversation starts to grow louder. Two of them are clearly at odds with each other, but the tension of the conversation has not broken to the group yet. Peter glances over and strains to hear. Slowly, it makes its way down the table. But who is the greatest? Peter sits up. The great irony here is that you have a bunch of humans created in the image of God, all arguing over which of them was the greatest creation of that image. Meanwhile, the embodiment of that deity is sitting at the table, quietly letting the argument run its course. An important thing to understand about the culture these disciples grew up in is that it was driven by honor and shame. The goal of every interaction then was to bring honor to yourself and to your family while avoiding shame. Honor is of utmost importance and avoiding shame is essential. Naturally, this creates a very explicit spectrum to place everyone on. So an argument about who is the greatest may look a little funny to us today, but this was everything to them. And actually, the more you think about it, it isn't that much different for us today. In some parts of the world, there is a very distinct and explicit caste system that everybody acknowledges. In other places, we don't say it so explicitly. Instead, we found implicit ways to create the same sort of system. And the rules are simple. Whoever has the most money or is the most attractive or wears the right clothes or does the most good works or whatever. But greatness is about something much more profound than shame and honor. Peter listened intently as the discussion turned to an argument. It spread from Matthew and his brother to the rest of the table on the left. Philip, sitting across the way from Thomas, saw them in heated debate. He rose and walked over to Thomas and bent to listen. His eyes widened. He stood up, walking quickly back to his place. He excitedly began to talk to Bartholomew. Soon, the room was bubbling over with intense conversation. Finally, the voices reached Peter. Who is the greatest here? One by one, the twelve began to justify their individual qualifications. Those furthest away from Rabbi had the least to say. The men throw out desperate actions. This one follows this law. That one has never missed synagogue. Peter knows these are exaggerations at best. This group is qualified by no holy business. Political and social ambition was covered by gossamer and honey. Peter listens. As he does so, he glances to his right at Rabbi. A quiet, bemused smile flashes across his teacher's thoughtful face. Peter is suddenly struck by memory. He feels a vague impression against the small part of his mind reserved for memories. This conversation has struck a vein of vague guilt, but Peter cannot seem to strike it. As the conversation reaches him, his mind turns towards the obvious. Rabbi is number one. Rabbi is the greatest. He has brought each man here from obscurity and shame to the verge of a movement. Peter, selfishly, considered himself number two. He has, for most of the time with Rabbi and the others, been a de facto leader. Just yesterday, he and John were sent on an important task without the rest. 
Peter is confident that when Rabbi ascends, he will be at his right hand, like Peter was tonight. So what does make someone great? That's a worthy conversation to have. Jesus isn't opposed to talking about greatness. Actually, I think he's a fan of talking about pursuing greatness. He does it all the time. The problem is, that isn't the conversation the disciples are having. Their conversation has less to do with greatness and more to do with ego, which means they already missed it. Who is the greatest is the wrong question because Genesis 1 tells us that every human being is created in the image of God. So the better question is, what makes someone worthy? The answer is being created in the image of God. I love that this conversation is happening around the table because I like to think that Jesus sat patiently letting the conversation run its course. Actions speak louder than words, and Jesus is about to prove it. A servant walks into the room. He's preparing the basin for the washing of feet. Peter doesn't even notice. Just as Peter is about to join the others to heatedly bicker about their positions in the coming kingdom, Rabbi suddenly stands from the table and walks over to the servant. Peter cuts his tongue short and follows Rabbi with his eyes. Rabbi quietly takes the washing basin and towel from the man. He then deliberately takes off his outer tunic, tying it around his waist. He walks back to the table and places the basin on the floor. He kneels in front of the farthest man from the center of the tables and methodically begins washing his feet. To fully understand the gravity of this, we need to understand something. Feet are gross. I mean, everyone knows that. I probably didn't need to pause for that one, but even more so if you are a first century follower of Jesus. Think about it, they are constantly on the move and it's not like they drove around in cars, they were walking a lot down filthy roads wearing sandals. So in this culture, washing feet is equated with shame and was reserved for the lowest person on the totem pole. It is the most humbling job you could do. All sound stops. Time seems to have stilled. The men sit, stunned. Silence oppresses the room with a heaviness Peter cannot explain. Rabbi is making his way around the table. He started at the far left end of the table with Judas. He has now made it to John. As he finishes washing John's feet, Rabbi smiles up at the beloved disciple. Peter snaps out of his gaze. This must be a test. He shouldn't be washing our feet. He is not the servant. We are his followers. It has to be a test. You shall never wash my feet. All eyes turn towards Peter. He is looking down at his teacher, a triumphant smile, confident, proud. If I do not, you have no share with me. It takes all Peter's strength to stay standing. He did it again. He said the wrong thing, misunderstood the lesson. He fears that his place at the right hand is slipping. Quickly, he tries again. Then wash my feet and my head and my hands. Peter desperately seeks the answer. Rabbi looks up at him, a sad smile on his face. He continues to wash Peter's feet. Standing up to move to the next man, he shakes his head. He looks into Peter's eyes and places his hand on the man's face. The one who is bathed does not need to wash, he looks down. Except for his feet, the smile is back. Peter begins to answer him, but stops himself short. He doesn't fully understand what he has just been told. Something in him 
for the first time, tells him to stop talking. Jesus isn't washing Peter's feet because Peter has done a good job these last three years. Jesus is washing Peter's feet because Peter is a human being. Jesus looks at him with nothing but love and serves. He just can't help it. It's who he is, which makes a greatness debate look really, really silly. There isn't room for ego around Jesus because he just doesn't care. Or maybe he cares too much about people to care about his standing in the world. Jesus essentially says, Peter, you're playing the wrong game. I'm not washing your feet to get ahead in some humble contest. I'm washing your feet because I'm on this earth to serve my fellow human being. I'm washing your feet because you are created in the image of God. See, Imago Day pulls the rug out from underneath the greatness contest. There isn't a contest anymore, at least not the way we think about contest. This is the next beautiful layer of the table. 700 years before this moment, Isaiah prophesied about the end of all things. He said, on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best meats and the finest wines. Did you catch that? The end of all things is another table, much larger table, one where there's a spot set for everyone. Every tribe, tongue, and nation will be represented. Great wine, the best me, a whole lot of laughter, and I'm convinced zero arguments about who is the greatest. Everyone will be too busy celebrating one another, serving one another, and trying to outdo one another in showing love. That doesn't leave much need for a hierarchy. Now, if you're thinking to yourself, wait a second, what do you mean there's a place set for everyone? How could that be? The story speaks for itself. So let's get back to the table. Rabbi dries Peter's feet. He hands the basin and towel back to the servant and takes his seat at the center of the tables. The room watches in wonder as he continues eating. He pauses and looks at each person. Do you understand what I have done for you? Discomfort covers the room. It fills each rough surface and face. Peter crumbles the unleavened bread in his hands. Of course they don't understand. Nothing in their lives, even the last three years, could have prepared them for what just happened. You all call me teacher and Lord. Peter looks up from the bread at John. He shifts on his seat as if the discomfort they all felt suddenly manifests itself in the pillow beneath him. He knows what Rabbi means by this. If he is teacher and Lord, then what are they? Who are they to argue about greatness if their leader is willing to humble himself enough to wash the dirt of their travels off their unkempt feet? Of course, Rabbi is the greatest. They'd all personally witnessed his greatness. Peter locks eyes with John again. Both men physically feel the shame of their folly. I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. Peter now looks at each of his companions with new wonder and curiosity. A band of misfits. He laughs to himself. Even that doesn't quite capture the collection of scum and villainy before him. At least scum and villainy by those not chosen and who do not follow. To follow the rabbi is to give up on what you knew and who you were. Peter senses that, but he still cannot grasp the how and why of their group. He looks at the sons of Zebedee. These two were fishermen. He had known them his whole life, yet he wasn't sure he might be able to pick them out of a crowd. Simon, the zealot, radical, 
a revolutionary who wanted to overthrow Rome. Matthew was a tax collector and the only person Simon hated more than Caesar himself. Their ability to work alongside one another struck Peter as almost miraculous. Then there was Judas, the biggest mystery of the Twelve. Despite their three years together, Peter knows little about this man. He was quiet, distant. Judas always seems uncomfortable around Rabbi, but as he sat with them all, in wonder at their new world where a master would humble himself to wash the feet of his followers, Judas looks physically smaller. He shrunk away from the touch of those around him, barely eating or participating in the dinner. He stared at his feet in disbelief. This is the hardest part of the story for me to grasp. Not only does Judas have a seat at the table, he also just had his feet washed by the very man he is about to betray. What do you do with that? It's one of the most backwards pictures you could imagine. And to make it worse, Jesus seems to know what is about to happen and yet he washes his feet anyways. Why? Because that is who Jesus is. And that is who Judas is. A human created in the image of God. So is Jesus going to honor him? Yeah, you, you bet. That is the message he came to bring. You can almost feel how badly he wishes Judas would just acknowledge it. But here's the catch. A table where everyone serves and honors one another sounds a lot like hell to the person who only cares about themselves. So Judas won't acknowledge it. He chooses rather to double down on bitterness. You can feel him becoming even more frustrated with the rabbi as the rabbi washes his feet. He won't accept the invitation of radical grace. Instead, he seems to let it harden his heart even more. So there's a spot at the table for him. He just doesn't want to be at the party. He wants to leave, and he can. And, and Jesus is about to let him, but just because the world doesn't receive the love doesn't mean we stop giving it. Our job isn't to judge who accepts the invitation to the table. Our job is to make room at the table for everyone. The example of Jesus is love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, and look for opportunities to serve everyone as if you actually believe they are created in the image of God, because they are. Now, if that sounds exhausting, yeah, I agree, it is. But luckily, there is an even deeper truth to the story of the table. Next time on Stories in Scripture, we'll watch that deeper truth connect a whole bunch of dots. It has to do with the most famous elements of the meal, the bread and the wine. Thanks for listening to this episode of Stories in Scripture. You can learn more about this project at storiesinscripture.com and be sure to follow us on Twitter at SIS Project.